So in the temptation account, uh, Jesus' victory over the devil's temptations contrasts with two earlier chapters from Israel's history. So I, I think it's, as we talk about it in this class, and we're trying to put it all together, let's connect this to those other, other events. Come on in, please. Uh, there's some more chairs back there we can put out uh, for those who need them. Uh, and I think the one that is explicit, well, it's actually not explicit in the text, but it's definitely implied because of uh, Jesus' response to Satan's temptations. Jesus responds each time with a quotation of Scripture, and each one of those quotations comes from the book of Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6 through 8. So that is a way of connecting what Jesus is going through with what Israel went through in the wilderness in the book of Deuteronomy. And if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 2, the text says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. So 40 years in the wilderness to test them, and now we have Jesus, um, but he's only 40 days. I don't think you can fast for 40 years. I, I think you can fast for 40 days, but you have to be very careful. Um, but I think it's possible to do. Uh, so Jesus fasts for 40 days, Israel in the wilderness, 40 years, number 40, of course. And then that, that next verse, um, it says, He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that people do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So it's interesting that he, he puts it in the active sense that God caused them to hunger. Um, so we've got to talk about that maybe some. So that's one uh, scene that I think is, is implicit in the text. I wonder, too, if it could go all the way back to the Genesis account of Adam and Eve in the garden uh, where the serpent says, did God really say you're not supposed to eat from every tree? So they were tested as well. Uh, would, would they rely on God or would they branch out and try their own thing? So Jesus is fulfilling uh, both the Adam and Eve. He's kind of making that, showing how they should have responded and then also Israel in the wilderness. Um, okay, so let's, uh, let's read this temptation account from Luke 4. So Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So he's going from his baptism and receiving the Spirit, and often I think we, if we want to make parallels, uh, you go from a spiritual high to a to a time of testing, and he is led by the Spirit. Um, the language in Mark is that he was thrown into the wilderness. Uh, I still think it means led, um, because that's the way Luke says it, and Luke knows Greek better than we do. Um, and he, so he says it, it means led. Um, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. I want to 
ask Lauren, and I, I haven't prepared you until just now, uh, and maybe, maybe you were going to say something along these lines anyway. Um, one of the questions that comes to my mind from the text is, could Jesus have actually failed the test? Um, and I pause and say that here because it says he was hungry. So there, there's a human, even though, you know, as we've taught in class, he's, he's God and man. But the human side was hungry. You know, I just wonder about um, if he could have failed the test. So maybe you can say something about that. Um, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, people do not live on bread alone. So that's a quotation from the text that we just read. Um, so the first temptation, I think each of these temptations is representative of the whole 40 days. Will you trust God to provide what you need? Um, so one of the keys to being successful when we're tempted is realizing this need for a higher power. And even though God gave them manna to satisfy them physically, that was supposed to represent the idea that you can't live on bread alone. So it's supposed to have a spiritual application. Yeah, I'm giving you bread, but you can't just live on bread alone. You also need spiritual spiritual gifts that God gives. Um, so will we rely on God to provide for our needs, both physical and spiritual? And sometimes a fast can be a practical way for us to, to realize that. And I think that's why Christians have fasted in their experience, because that is how you realize that, you know, like if you fast from food, uh, life is more than just food. It helps me to remember that. Um, I went through a phase where I asked students to fast um, as we were going through this text from food and over the years I've decided to change that uh, for several reasons you know like there's food issues in our culture anyway so I didn't want to add to that so I have them fast from social media now uh, and then reflect on how, how does that work and I, I get better responses from that uh, and sometimes uh, it's very interesting to hear what they learn when they do that. Some already do it, some, but uh, for some it's something you have to be told to do. Okay, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Um, the first question I have is, does Satan have the power to give the rule to anybody he wants? And then I think that explains some of our elections in our country. <laughs> uh, and you can take that whichever side you want to, I suppose. <laughs> um, I, I think my, my sense is it wouldn't be surprising if Satan is promising more than he could actually provide. So I would say he'd I know he has power, but I think he's claiming to have more power, maybe than he really has, which, which wouldn't be a surprise. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So this is the temptation of will you worship things other than God? 
Um, so uh, we so often look for other sources for the power that only God can give. And Jesus is being tempted to go a different way than the cross, I think, to get the power. And um, because he submits to God at this point and throughout his life, and especially in the Garden of Gethsemane, we, we find out what the true power really is in the universe, um, suffering for the sake of others. And then um, the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. So the devil can quote scripture too. And uh, this teaches us that it is possible to twist the scriptures uh, and take them out of context and make them mean something they don't mean. And we need to be aware of that. Um, to guard you carefully, they will lift up you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished all, these, all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So will you, I, I summarize this as, will you accept suffering if that is God's will? Um, and the Israelites you know, tested God because they complained a lot about lack of water, lack of food. I, I don't know that it was wrong to, to mention it, you know, like we're hungry, we're thirsty. But it, the text kind of says they were complaining. So maybe, maybe there's a difference between just mentioning that you would like some water and some food and complaining about it. Uh, it was something about, you know, in Deuteronomy 6.16, is what Jesus is quoting here, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So moments of lack and suffering point us to the truth and only God gives us what we really need. And it may be that the, since God led them into the wilderness, our wilderness times can somehow be a feature and not a bug uh, in the program. So those are the times that we, we learn to rely on God in some ways. Okay, so the temptation. And so the theological question is, um, could Jesus not have passed this? Do you want to comment now or you want to wait? Okay, you've already got it. Okay, good. Okay, I have one other thing uh, from the reading from John Mark's book to, to point to. And that has to do with how do we define the gospel? So we move on from the temptation to Jesus uh, in in the synagogue in Nazareth saying, I am sent to preach the good news, preach the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? And did Jesus preach the gospel, John Mark asked, did Jesus preach the gospel? And I think a lot of us, if we were just asked randomly, what is the gospel? A lot of people in our churches would say it's believing in Jesus so that your sins can be forgiven and because he died on the cross our sins can be forgiven and we can go to heaven when we die. At least our souls can go to heaven when we die. Um, and that is that has become what the gospel is. So if, if it includes the cross, uh, John Mark in his book says then Jesus didn't preach the gospel because he doesn't he does talk some about going to the cross, but not until much later. I didn't realize until I read in John Mark's book that he says he didn't talk about that 
until the last few months of his ministry. I guess I'd never thought about exactly when he had first said that uh, prior to reading that in John Mark's book. Um, so if the gospel only means forgiveness of sins, then maybe Jesus didn't preach the gospel. So to say that Jesus preached, if we want to say yes, and John Mark says the answer is yes and no, so no on the sins part, but yes on the idea of the gospel being the kingdom of God and God's will being done on earth the same way it's done in heaven. And I do think our definition of the gospel needs to include both of those. And sometimes in churches we just focus on the forgiveness of sins part, and maybe there's some times in churches where you just focus on the social justice, God's will being done on earth the way it's done in heaven part. And so we have to combine those things together, and I think that's the best way is to try to combine them together. Um, I know the church I grew up in, we did, a, we, we did bags of food for the poor, and they said, we've got to put a tract in the bag. You've got to put a tract in the bag. Uh, every bag had to have a tract that says that you can be baptized for the remission of your sins is part of our benevolence ministry. We didn't want to just give food, right? We also have to give the sin part. And I don't know, is that, maybe there's some wisdom in that. I, I tended to look at that as being kind of, okay, do we have to do that? But I wonder if there's, if the, the kind of thing about the church is that it's not just uh, feeding people physically, but there's a spiritual aspect as well that people need and if and there's going to be organizations that aren't churches who feed people but they're not going to talk about the, the sin part and so maybe the power of the church uh, doing these types of things is that we can combine those together uh, the passage that kind of was an aha moment for me is Luke chapter 7 verse 18 on this idea of what is the gospel um, Luke chapter 7. So the context there, starting about verse 18, John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? And when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. So the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. And then the last thing is the poor hear the gospel. Um, if, if the gospel is just your sins are forgiven, it doesn't seem to me that the poor are getting the same category of healing that the dead people and the blind people and the, the lame people are getting. They're physically being able to be restored. If, if the poor people just get your sins are, the, the gospel preached is only the forgiveness of sins, it doesn't fit the rest of those uh, things mentioned so it has to include not just your sins are forgiven but that if you're poor 
we will share our resources with you and help get you out of your poverty. Does that make sense? So to me, that was kind of, as I was reading that in Greek class one day, I thought, oh, that, that's... So when we talk about the gospel, the good news, it needs to include something about helping people out of their state. And this gets to the idea of what is the kingdom of God. And John Mark has a statement in his book where he says on page 120, the kingdom is not the structures and organization of an institutionalized church. So I I was kind of always taught that the kingdom and the church are the same thing. Um, And I still wonder about that. to me, and, and Lauren, you might can help us with this too, like the way we set the whole class up when we talk about the kingdom being the way that God created the world and God is the king and he created us in his image to, to do kingdom work in the world. If you go all the way back to creation, then it would seem to be that when, whenever people are helping others and helping God's will be done on earth as in heaven, that could be kingdom work. But since Jesus has come, he's the king. He's, he represents God as the king. So if Jesus, if we're talking about Jesus' kingdom, how can you do kingdom work if you don't believe in the king or you're not doing it in the name of King Jesus? So the way Scott McKnight asked this question in his book, Kingdom Conspiracy, I'm going to ask you this directly. Did Gandhi do kingdom work? Is, is a good question to get that on the table because Gandhi was not a Christian but he helped a lot of people and he, he brought social justice so how do we and do, it may not matter you know I, I love for justice to be done however it's done I think is, is right but, but I don't know exactly where the practical implications are uh, but maybe it does help us some to see that we need to be about combining the spiritual uh, sin. Jesus is dealing with sin with our uh, social justice as well. Okay? Thank you. George likes to teaming up with all these hard questions, and then maybe I should do the same to him. I'm going to start bringing some questions. With <laughs> I don't believe that. Okay, um, I just want to add a couple of maybe notes about um, the way we see Jesus' ministry as the fulfillment or the sort of continuation, the kind of recapitulation is a fancy word theologians like to use, of Israel's story and its mission. So you see this, um, if you want to look at Isaiah 9. Let's see. And I'll just read this. Isaiah 9. Uh, one and two, and then six and seven. This is uh, a poem celebrating the birth or the accession of an heir to the throne and summarizing Israel's expectation that this ruler, as promised, you know, uh, Messiah, House of David, will bring about a transition from the darkness of the current age into the dawning light of the new age, um, where there's this age of peace that is going to be inaugurated. So verse one, But there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of 
Natalie. These are, uh, and interestingly, what, what's happening there, these are the two uh, places where Assyria, fir- I think what Assyria first took when it, um, the lands it was taking from Israel, okay? But in the latter time, he will make glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. And then hopping down to six and seven. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Okay, so, and then what's interesting is if you look then at what's going on in Matthew 4, you know, if you're, you're, most of you in this room are probably raised to know this about Matthew. Matthew's the gospel that really works to connect Jesus' story with Israel's story to show that he is, again, sort of, um, you know, what George had mentioned, he's, he's kind of doing Israel's story over, but actually doing it the right way. He's getting it right this time. So let's look at Matthew 4. Um, starting in verse 12. See what you notice the parallel here. Okay, um, and, and remember kind of the timeline, okay? Um, like Israel, Jesus has gone to Egypt. Um, he's come through the waters. For him, it's the waters of baptism. For Israel, what, were the, what was the big you know, body of water they came through? The sea. The sea, that's right. Which is interesting because early Christians thought of that. They thought of the flood and the exodus through the sea as baptismal imagery uh, because they're always connecting that with Jesus' passage through his waters. Okay, Um, And then uh, he's filled with the Spirit, goes into the wilderness, undergoes temptation, right, and actually is faithful. And now in this passage, um, we have something new happening. So let's pay attention to that. Okay, verse 12. Um, now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea. Remember that language from we just read from Isaiah. In the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region in shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Okay, and then I want to hop down to 23 through 25. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And it, so that's that gospel, that gospel pro- proclamation George was talking about. And curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, etc. So what we hear here is, um, just, this is just sort of driving, I just think this is a, a nice way of driving home the point, the point, several of the points George was making, um, that what we see here is that um, this is about renewing Israel, what God is doing through Jesus is 
renewing Israel's whole story. And um, also, it's sort of showing us how, what it looks like for the kingdom to break in. Um, so he's saying, when he says the kingdom has drawn near, it's sort of like this way of saying it's arriving, it's showing up among you, pay attention, and this is what it looks like. It looks like freeing people from all of these things that hold them in captivity to sin and evil and death, right? But interestingly, he doesn't start by, yeah, it's not about forgiveness of sins quite yet. It's about freeing them from the kind of bondage of death and decay, right? So, um, you know, I think John Mark says this in terms of this is sort of this connection with the land is also interesting. For Israel, um, this, you know, we've um, been reminded in some pretty tragic ways recently, the, the hopes of Israel are always tied to this particular piece of land, right? And this idea that God is going to do something important through their presence in this place. And we see that showing up here in a really important way, uh, that the light is dawning, the light of God's glory breaking into the world through this person, Jesus, is showing up in this particular place and inaugurating this kingdom, this new age of peace. Um, and so, and what does it look like? Well, it looks like healing the sick, and eventually, of course, it does include forgiveness of sin um, and reconciliation of people groups. So I think, again, just to sort of, this is just to sort of echo what George was saying, I think this is another instance where we're kind of called to re- remember and imagine that salvation is bigger than just forgiveness of sins. That the good news of the gospel, yes, it's about being forgiven. It's about being reconciled to God. It's also about um, the world itself being healed. It's about our bodies being healed. It's about anticipating resurrection. It's about uh, anticipating the healing of creation, the reconciliation of people groups. It's all of it. So it's not just about forgiveness of sins or moving out of sin. It's, it's about evil and death being defeated as well. Um, let's see. Uh, let's, I, I think, you know, oh, and I think it's also interesting to think about how when Jesus is, um, he, he, if he is sort of inheriting and kind of fulfilling Israel's vocation, he also is handing that off to us. Um, you know, you remember Mark 16, 15, Jesus tells his apostles, go into all the world, proclaim the good news to all of creation. That's interesting language, I think. It's not just all people there. It's all creation. But, I, you know, this is the church's mission, too, to fill the world with the glory of God. So that comes, I think that connects with the question of, is Gandhi doing kingdom work? Um, so <clears throat> I can maybe say a little bit about that. Um, the, the two questions George asked me to speak to, that's one of them. And the other was, could Jesus have failed Satan's test? Those are both really tough questions that, t- that take a long time to kind of think through. So I, you know, when I'm trying to give a short answer, I'm always thinking of all the things that you could say to like explain or nuance. But maybe a, a short answer to the question of Gandhi first is, I would say um, anyone who does the kind of work God wants to see done in the world is at least somehow inadvertently bringing glory to God, I would think, right? So um, God's will is to see um, all things set right in every respect. So sure, Gandhi was doing kingdom work, but do I also think it stops there? No, I would say I also fully believe that um, one day all knees will bow and all tongues confess that Jesus is Lord. So I believe that, I, I hope that Gandhi will have a chance to do that I don't know what that looks like. Um, 
I'm, I'm glad God is in control. I'm glad I can believe that, that God is in control. Um, I think Christians should do this kind of work in the name of Jesus as much as possible. I think it's great to give money to organizations that are alleviating poverty when you can't find a good Christian organization that's doing it. You know, if there's one that there's a certain thing you want to see done and you want to help see it come about, great. But if you also want to get involved at like the Wayne Reed Center, that's a great thing to do because you're doing that in the name of Jesus, right? So I think as much as possible, that's what we should be doing. Um, I, but I'd be happy to hear, you know, us to have conversation around that. And then um, the question of could he have failed Satan's test? Um, it's interesting because I want to say, I mean, the knee-jerk reaction, of course, is no, right? No way. He couldn't have failed. And I actually do believe that. I believe that he could not have failed um, because he is the son of God. But what's I think kind of more interesting to consider is um, did he know that? Did he know that for sure? I don't know. That's right. That's right. And he, you know, scripture says he was like us in every way, kind of every way that mattered, right? He under really underwent temptation. Um, he seems in the text to for this to be a real kind of struggle same thing on the cross same thing in gethsemane right there's this real kind of agonistic sort of wrestling with is this really what you're asking me to do am i getting this right right you know so um another thing that's interesting some of these really ancient you know thinkers just the first few centuries um after the christ event the way they think about the salvation the whole like drama of salvation is they think of um satan as not necessarily knowing who he was dealing with. So they say, maybe Satan knew this is a really important guy. This is a, clearly a prophet, a, very, a really powerful person. But he wouldn't have, according to this line of thinking, okay, I think it's interesting. Maybe he didn't know this was the Son of God. Maybe he's trying to figure out who Jesus is too. And uh, so it's an interesting kind of theory that maybe Satan's like, I'm not sure who this is. I'm going to see if I can figure it out. So in Jesus being faithful, that kind, that's a way of sort of reassuring that he's able to be faithful all the way to the end. And the way these thinkers think of it is they say, Satan didn't realize when he took, when he took Jesus in death um, that he was taking something that didn't belong to him. He was taking a sinless person. And then by virtue of taking what didn't belong to him, his legal power over the rest of us was sort of broken. If you like C.S. Lewis, you might like that kind of telling of it, okay? That's sort of the one that Lewis likes. I think it's interesting. I think there's lots of ways of wondering and considering about that, what that mystery might have entailed. A lot of it is just we're brought back to the mystery of that, right? We don't know exactly how it all played out. But, um, and then uh, was there another question that you had asked that I haven't addressed, maybe about the kingdom? Um, my husband was like, oh, you need to mention that the... Uh, what he's inaugurating, I think one way we can think about the kingdom is that it is arriving. So the, the language that um, theologians like to use is that it's a proleptic event. Um, the idea is that the end has broken into the middle of the, the drama, so to speak. Okay, So um, what we've seen in what Jesus has done, he showed up in the middle of history as where history is headed. Okay. So it's like we get to see a glimpse through him and his life and his resurrection of what's coming for the rest of us. So it is. So the kingdom is arriving, um, but it's not fully here. So it's like you have this interesting language in the New Testament where it sounds like 
the kingdom is it's drawn near it's here it's among you it's happened and then also it's not yet here we're waiting for this we're looking for it to be fulfilled so we live in this kind of tension again you know language you'll hear used is this is an eschatological tension like we're looking to the eschaton which is the end um so we live in the now and the not yet of the kingdom it's arrived but we're waiting for it to show up um so i find that helpful in thinking about how we have access to god through the spirit which is this glorious gift and yet we still struggle with sin like we still struggle with the kind of um the powers and principalities of evil in the world are still at at war, so to speak, with God. Um, and yet, the victory has been accomplished, right? Um, so, yeah, you want to... Well, I, I wonder if you want to pick up on the question of suffering, and I, I'd like to hear you talk about, because I'm not, I'm not a big fan of suffering, and <laughs> if, but it seems, is, is because we worship Jesus who went to a cross mean that suffering is built into our experience and then what does it mean then to say that one day we won't suffer anymore or, or should suffering always I, I just don't know how, how would you respond yeah. to that um, I think again I'm just sort of shorthand answer for a big conversation so if you want to talk more about this I'd be happy to um, it seems like the indication is even from the beginning, Adam and Eve, we're going to have to struggle. Suffering, no, but struggle, yes, in the sense of saying no to temptation. There was some kind of maturation process that they were going to have to undergo even before they fell into sin, which is interesting. So, um, but then once, once the brokenness of sin is introduced to the, to the creation, that includes suffering. Like the, the struggle includes suffering because... That's, I mean, that's our condition, right? Like, we all go through death. We all go through the pain of loss, the pain of... Um, and, and then also feeling ourselves ill-equipped to really set things in order. The, the, the forces of evil are bigger than us, right? Um, so that, that is also another kind of suffering that we experience before the end. So it does seem like... I mean, it's a pretty clear call Like we're given. Like, to follow Jesus means to be willing to pick up our cross and follow him, be willing to suffer. But I think we have to be careful not to think of, if we're not suffering, that's a sign that we're not following him. Like, because that can also get lead to some messy stuff, right? Like, where people sort of seek out suffering. Um, I think for us in our culture, it's probably more likely that we could fall into the trap of, um, just sort of getting comfortable and not expecting that we should do anything hard or anything costly. So, uh, you know, we live pretty comfortable lives. We've talked about that the past few classes. So I think there's a sense in which we should be willing to, to take a look and see what, what are we giving up? What are we actually giving up? Are we living differently than we would anyway um, because we follow a crucified Lord? Yeah. Um, happy to open it up to other questions or comments or... Anything? Yeah. Um, when we talked about uh, the, the temptations of Jesus, do you um, equate those with uh, the parable of the sower with the third soil? I haven't mm. heard that before. Have you ever? George, have you that? heard about that? The third soil. The third soil, the weeds, and then where we're all. Uh, um, uh, let's see. I can't remember all three of them. But the, 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 there should be the three temptations of Jesus. Mm. Uh, where is the parable? Well, I know it's in Matthew. Does Luke have that? 
It's in there somewhere. He does. He does have it. Okay. I don't know what show. Well, probably knew it in Luke since we just um, did it there. But it's it's the um, oh I don't know. Uh, is is it the the, the, the idea the, that that the, uh, the gospel can be choked out by the, by yeah. the cares of, of life and, yeah. and all that kind of thing? Yes, and I can't remember what the three are. Yeah, <laughs> and that, that makes sense to me. I, I've never made that connection oh, before, okay. but the idea that Jesus is being tempted to the, the same to distracted distracted yeah. to find pleasure or power in some way other than the way God wants you to. So that's the weeds. Can you know. say the <laughs> Well, okay, the first okay. the first soil is is a path. Yeah. Where it's and then just you sketchy. have the rocky and then you have the thorny. Yeah, the thorny, the which is what probably <clears throat> most people who even are connected with church are. They just get comfortable mm-hmm. and yeah. it's not really even a a following of Jesus yeah. anymore. It's a following of socially acceptable. Yeah. And that's kind of the, um, <coughs> I don't know, greed yeah. and, and um, just not being willing to give up yourself mm-hmm. for something else. My go-to example on the thorns in class is season tickets to the Titans. Uh, <laughs> and I'm speaking to myself on that because I, um, I'm tempted to prioritize things that don't, that don't really give true life. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> See, uh, hand back here and then here. Yeah. Uh, on the question of Gandhi, uh, in looking at uh, Romans 2 and people who are Gentiles who do not have the law but whose hearts and thoughts yeah. defend them with the law and presumably with God himself, could that be someone perhaps who is not a Christian or is this a statement about Gentiles who believe in Jesus as their Messiah or could there be someone who actually has in their heart the requirements of God who is not a believer? I've always read that to be Gentiles who keep the law that's written on our hearts, even though they don't know the law. I've, I've recently been introduced to the idea that it's Gentiles who are God fearers, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I don't know what to do with that. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned that because I don't, I haven't sorted that out. So I've always read it to be it's that there are, there is a sense in which God's revelation can be discerned from creation. And, and if if the, if the Christian way of living is the way we're supposed to live and the way God created the world to, to function the best, then it seems to me that even if you don't believe that, if you start, if you're doing the good things, your life is going, I mean, there's going to be some natural consequence that's going to be good that's going to draw people to say, you know, I, I think that's actually the better way to do, not get revenge, but to forgive is going to work if, if it's the way we were created to really be. Yeah. I've always viewed that part of all of humanity bears the image of God. And even in the worst situations, sometimes that image manifests itself, which then would be 
something that is glorifying God, even in the brokenness. Mm -hmm. And again, I think for me, that kind of touches that suffering. We are made in a way that is supposed to manifest that, but we don't live into it, and there's that tension that is constantly in our lives that I think is, would be a suffering situation, maybe not the complete part of it, but um, there's something about our being the image of God that uh, in, in most mm-hmm. ways is at least manifest in different ways. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I was wondering, we were talking with colleagues through a text this weekend about social science is discovering that you know it's actually better for families if if there's a mom and a dad in the in the household. Um, I mean, and that's kind of controversial for for the social scientists, I guess, to, to say that. But but then some of us are like, well, yeah, it makes this makes sense, and and maybe there's some things that that you can discover in ways that kind of confirm the story. And you sure. were you were saying some things like that on the text, but I don't know if you want to. Well, it just made me think of something you said. I'm not sure if it was last week or two weeks ago, but I had mentioned that I'm, I'm really fascinated by the fact that this message that's so closely tied to Israel's story somehow appealed to people outside of Israel, Gentiles, in this early context, like Christianity spread among Gentiles so quickly, and why were they so drawn to it, and how did... People like Paul make it accessible to them. I just think that's fascinating. And George said, well, could it be because it was true? (laughs) Uh, Which is a a great reminder that, yes, like, I think that's right. I think there is something, I mean, it's more complicated than that, I might say. And I think we could think, and maybe we'll have time to think through that some in this class. Like, what were the sort of moves Paul did, for example, to help them see it as true? Um, But... That there is something, um, if you really believe that truth is a sort of something that exists out there, right, um, that actually is, then um, it should show up in all kinds of places and ways. And I believe that um, what people need is to bring together the name of Jesus um, and the person of Jesus as what their heart is leading them to to what the truth leads them to and yet the truth should sh- would show up in places like Gandhi's work or um, the the insights of all kinds of things like social science or the hard sciences even right there could be ways in which <coughs> truth is going to sh- God's truth is can be found in all kinds of places um, so we should expect that we shouldn't think it can only come from you know kind of narrow Christian discourses who also are broken so, oh, that's right. And there's yeah. also the fact that we're still sinful. Yeah. Okay, you've patiently been waiting. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's just really hit me this year that my view of good news has been been limited. Mm. And that it has become the full 360 degrees of good news, like love and light. And it's like a sunflower. And the forgiveness atonement, it's a couple petals off the sunflower. But we're called to be the children of God, the right to be called children of God, the family of God, the eternity, the love, joy, peace, places, the fullness of the Spirit. It's a whole 360 mm-hmm. degrees that we, that we need. It, it just, it's just been one of those years for me to come to see the fullness of good news. Mm-hmm. And 
That's great. I like that image. The full moon. Anything you want to? Yeah. Can we go back to Jesus in the, the wilderness? <coughs> um, so like what you said about Adam and Eve at the beginning, they were going to struggle. Mm. They had to be carrying. I feel like Jesus also followed that same mm -hmm. pattern mm -hmm. that, yes, he could have said no. He could have not. One, I want to believe that he suffers like I do. Mm. Like when I'm struggling, I can make it. Like I don't have to give in mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. Christ also had things that tempted him. He did not give in. But I think it was also preparing him so that he could finish strong. Right? Mm -hmm. I think it was the starting point. Plus, it gives me hope in myself that I, I personally, what I think of is it was his relationship with God that super close bond that they had kept him from sinning. So it encourages me to get closer and closer to God mm -hmm. so that I can resist the things that come. Because even as children, before we have children, they have to suffer <coughs> mm -hmm. Or they will never mature and become adults. Mm -hmm. I mean, we see it now. We do, we do see Some that. Some of those 20-year-olds listen. <laughs> I'm one of those parents that tries to protect the kids from everything. And but I, I'm so glad you said that because um, it is, I think, I think the thing that we're drawn back to there is the full union. I mean, you know, this is, Christians became, uh, they, had, they sorted all this out in all these councils and they came to this point where they said, well, we can't really understand the full mystery of what it means to say this person was fully human and fully God. We know we, we have to confess that if we're going to be faithful to scripture. We don't really know exactly how that all gets sorted out. But we do know that it, it comes down to that point that you're making of the closeness, right? There's, this, there's such an intimate tie between his humanity and the divinity, which is Trinitarian. So what that means basically is relational with the Father. And so um, what, what preserved him from sinning is more important than could he or could he not. I mean, I say he couldn't have because he's fully divine. But I'm with you that I also want to say he could have because he was fully human. And so it's a kind of, I, I think it brings us back to the point that this is a, this is a wonderful mystery we can't understand. But what, it, what does it teach us about us? It teaches us to draw as close as possible to God. That's what it takes to withstand temptation. So yeah, that's a great point, thank you. Um, we may have time for maybe one more. If y'all need to go, it's okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, I was just gonna say, I've been reading in, in James recently because I've been uh, teaching that to my students and. That, that point came up in the trials and tribulations and this is we're made complete um, in, our, in our faith because of the trials and tribulations mm -hmm. we face. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when you're talking about the temptation and stuff, it, it's almost making me think of, like you said, the start of completing that process of getting to where he was. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's, it's like, like we say, Jesus is a savior for us, but he's also an example. <coughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, amen, that's well said. I've heard somebody say that we can't really complain that Jesus couldn't have failed the test because, you know, if you're drowning mm -hmm. and somebody on dry land is 
throwing you a rope, or you're like, that's not fair, you're on dry land, you know, you've got to get here with me. Um, and they use that analogy to say, even if, you know, you need to just get over the fact that he's not. But um, I also have heard something else that stuck with me, and this is a separate point, but that, yeah, he could have, but the, the whole universe would have ceased to exist at that point. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it was possible, but if, since he was God, that would have changed everything. Mm-hmm. I don't know what to do with all that. Yeah, yeah, it's a mystery. <laughs> Thanks so much.